Last week we began a new series that we're calling The Genius of Genesis, and we only dealt with the first few words, the first four words of Genesis 1, verse 1, and I'm going to come back to that same passage today. We're going to take that out a little bit further. Primarily we're dealing with still just verse 1, but we're going to read Genesis 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the water. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Lord God, we ask that you would bring light not only into this world, but into our minds and in our hearts. Allow us to understand your truth and these these core principles that are there at the very start of the very first book of the Bible. Help us as we, we build a foundation or we renew our understanding of the foundation of who you are and what you want us to understand so that we know how to operate in this world. Lord, I ask that you would bless everyone who is here in the room this morning and those who are watching online. I ask that together you will, you will draw us into a place where we are united around central truths of the scriptures that allow us to understand our world, and to live our lives well. Grant us wisdom this week. We ask that you would give us strength where we need help and we cannot solve some of the problems that are a part of our lives today. We ask that you will bring healing into our lives. We have a number of friends who are struggling with one illness or disease or malady or another. And um, Lord, we, we ask that you would grant us wisdom to know how to operate daily. Grant us a winsomeness in the way that we live out our faith before our family and our friends and our co-workers. Allow us to represent the Jesus who loves us, the Jesus who went to the cross for us in the way that we live and talk and think every day. Guide us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1997... An unexpected pair of young actors stunned the movie world with a film that starred two young Bostonians, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, along with actor and comedian Robin Williams. You probably know where I'm going. This is the movie Good Will Hunting. The movie was nominated for, for four Academy Awards and it won two for Best Supporting Actor for Robin Williams and Best Original Screenplay for, Damon, for uh, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. Now, this was the story of a mathematical genius who was working as a janitor at MIT, yet he solved a complex math problem that none of the other students who were in the classes that the professor who wrote this problem on the board could seem to work out. The movie was an instant sensation, uh, being filmed at the cost of a mere $10 million. It pulled in more than $225 million that year. But the most amazing aspect of the story is that Goodwill Hunting was originally written by Matt Damon as a, a paper for a class that he had on film writing while he was a student at Harvard. Instead of turning in a one-act play that the assignment called for, he turned in a 40-page movie script. And then he enlisted his best friend, Ben Affleck, to help him develop, into, develop it into a more of a full-ranged uh, script that they could take to the movie production people. Castle Rock initially bought the script, but then they balked when Damon and Affleck suggested that they, who had never acted in a movie before, should star in the film. Uh, Instead, they wanted Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt to take on those roles, a little more seasoned, a little more well-known. 
But Damon and Affleck were able to shop it around until another studio bought the script and then let them star in their own film. So think of this. Here are these two guys who've never acted in a film before. They become the stars of the movie, and they write the script for the movie, which they'd also never done before, and it becomes a massive hit. Now, I, I begin with that story this morning because just as Matt Damon was the genius behind the Goodwill hunting story, so there is a genius that I want to introduce to you today. We're looking at bedrock principles that link us to the faith of our founders in this current series that we're calling The Genius of Genesis. But I want to introduce you to the real genius behind all this. The real genius is God. God is the source of all this great wisdom that comes out of this. So our topic this morning is introducing the real genius. And the question that we've been asking the last couple of weeks is, what principles help us make sense of our world But uh, the question that we have today is, uh, what is it that we learn about God as well in these, these opening words of the very first verse of the Bible? So this morning, I would like to introduce to you the real genius of Genesis, and this is God. And I'd like to take us through five initial discoveries that we make about God. Here's the first one. God is eternal. I know that's not news to most of you, and yet it's such an essential feature that we understand about God. So verse 1 begins with the same words we used last week, in the beginning, God. Last week, we noticed how the opening statement of Genesis gives us a reference point. Genesis tells us that there was a beginning, that the world we live in is not eternal. It did not always simply exist. It's not that everything that's out there has always been there and always will. Rather, there was a starting point. And we noted last week how the invention of the Hubble telescope revealed an expanding universe, which began to change the way that a number of branches of science started to look at things. Now, you may be aware that in academic institutions, for roughly the last hundred years or so, there's been a, a shift toward the idea that uh, the universe was eternal and that there is no God who started all of this, that that's uh, something that belongs in the religion world but is not based in fact. But then there's been a shift that has happened in the last 40 or 50 years or so um, in the science world where there are four major disciplines where people have started to say, you know what, from science we're seeing that there is more and more evidence that seems to back up the idea that maybe the Bible was right after all and that there is a God behind all of this. Now, where do we get that? We get that from cosmology. We talked that a little, about that a little bit last week, that those who are looking at the skies, uh, specifically from the Hubble telescope and the one that's replaced it now, they saw that there's an expanding universe and that they could see that the, the stars and the galaxies were moving outward, but they also noticed over time that that outward movement was slowing down. So that tells them two things. From science, this is not coming from the Bible. First, that there had to be a starting point where everything began and the movement is outward from that. But second, because it's slowing down, it points to the idea that there's also going to be an end, that the universe itself is not eternal. And yet, the creator of it is. So there are a number of disciplines that are changing the way that current science is discovering basic truths from the world around us in cosmology, in astronomy, in DNA research, the, the incredible complexity within each DNA strand, and also from archaeology. They're finding that there are more and more facts and discoveries that point out that a number of the historical details of the Bible were accurate, even though people were telling us for years that there was no evidence 
for what the, the Bible seems to claim or the places. And archaeology has been amazing because it's only a 150-year-old discipline. But there are so many uh, artifacts and, and pieces of cities and pottery and, and old beams with inscriptions on them with the names of David and people that they assumed didn't really exist, that these were just made-up stories in the Bible. And yet they're finding all these ancient records that back up the Bible increasingly. So we are living in a day when the best of science is actually changing the way we're being taught. And it's not that that science can prove the existence of God, but it leads toward the support that the things that we've been claiming in the church have been right all along. What a wonderful time we live in today. And yet there's still great controversy around all of these things. So I find it amazing that the Bible has been telling us for 3,500 years that there was a beginning, and in the beginning was God. Now, that means that while the earth is not eternal, that it is eventually going to come to an end, apart from the hand of God intervening, God is, because God precedes all of this. The planet that we live on had a beginning. The sun that shines on us and that is a key to warmth and light and photosynthesis had a beginning. But God was there before all that we come to see in its existence. He is the one force, the one being, who is greater than all this, who is before all this. Knowing that there was a starting point leaves us with two primary options in the way that we think about the world. One option is that somehow, some way, we got something from nothing, but it's more than that, that we got complexity, beauty, and magnificence from nothing. The second option is that someone, some great force, some great intelligence existed before the world and before the universes and the expanse beyond. Those are the two major options that we have in the way that we think about beginnings. So it is significant and noteworthy that Genesis begins with these tremendous words, in the beginning, God. Genesis itself is full of genius because it tells us so much that we need to know. However, it is pointing to the real genius of Genesis, who is God himself. He is that great intelligence. It's not just some unnamed force. He is the one who stands alone before all of creation. For God to exist at the beginning means that he stands outside of time. He's not controlled by it. By definition, everything and everyone who was not present at the beginning is subject to time. All that is but God, the one who was there at the beginning. He is the one who reveals what was before and who is responsible for it. So we are left with this great choice, choosing to believe that all of matter, beauty, order, wonder, and complexity in our world came into existence through a set of astoundingly random choices from, or chances from nothing, or that a being we come to know as the Creator God is so much greater than all we see that God is the powerful force and intelligent being, the genius behind it all. This is the foundational conviction that the opening four words of Genesis lead us to, that the God of the Bible is the genius of Genesis. And the primary intention of Genesis is not to explain every scientific question that we have. We are wrong if from the, the Christian world we try to make the Bible a textbook for science. It's not. It's not trying to answer all those questions. But it is trying to introduce us to the real genius of Genesis. 
That make sense? God is eternal. That's our first discovery. Here's the second. Genesis reveals God as the creator. And so verse 1 says, if we stretch it out a little bit more, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So we add in this fifth word of Genesis, God created. The first three words in the beginning give us a reference point. The fourth word reveals to us the genius of Genesis. Now the fifth word tells us that God is the one who created. Now this is interesting. The Hebrew word that is used here for created is only used in the Bible with God as its subject. This specific word. It means to create something new. Theologians often use a Latin phrase, ex nihilio, that means to create from nothing or out of nothing. Think about that. Every artist, sculptor, builder in this world creates from something. God creates new, from nothing. There's an old story about a believer in materialistic evolution who approaches God and says, we don't need you anymore, God. Science has finally figured out a way to create life out of nothing. We can now do what you did in the beginning. And the Lord says, oh, is that so? Yes, he says, we can take dirt and form it into a human likeness and breathe life into it, thus creating man. Well, that's interesting, says the Lord. Show me. So the man reaches down, and he takes a handful of dirt, and he starts to mold it into the soil, into the shape of a human being, and God says, no, 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 laughing. Get your own dirt. (laughs) (laughs) Pastor and author Max Anders pointed out how ethnobiologist Terence McKenna included this statement in a TED Talk. Quote, this this is the words of Terence McKenna. Modern science is based on the principle, give us one free miracle and we will explain the rest. The one free miracle is the appearance of all mass and energy in the universe and all the laws that govern it in a single instant from nothing, unquote. As he made that statement, a nervous ripple of laughter began to break out in the audience because what he proposed seems transparently true when put in such brutal terms, yet they knew they were not supposed to agree with it. Anders goes on to explain that those who insist there is no God are asking for more than that. That modern atheistic approaches to science are asking for not one, but five miracles. Let's look at the five miracles that uh, atheists typically ask for in trying to explain the universe. Here's the first miracle. How something came from nothing. The second is how order came from chaos. Things left to themselves turn toward disorder rather than order. How life came from non-life. How consciousness comes from non-consciousness. How transcendence comes from consciousness. See, what we're discovering here is that God is revealed as the creator. And God does something that the, the world, in all of its various disciplines, has never figured out how to do. How do you take inanimate material, matter, and breathe life into it with all the complexity of a human being and the cells that make up your body. God is eternal. Second discovery is that God is the creator. Here's the third, that God is greater. So it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Those are very descriptive terms. Now, I remember the process that we went through nearly 20 years ago in building this facility that we're meeting in here today. 
an architect met with our building team several times. I was on that building team, and uh, they tried to get an idea of what we wanted, how our church functioned, where we saw ourselves moving over the next decade or two or beyond. And then a concept came together. Actually, there were several concepts and early sketches and finally a master plan. And then the sketches were backed up by design plans and blueprints for a building to actually go up. But that wasn't all of it. After that, a builder and his team needed to come together and turn those plans into a physical reality. The process took nine months, which was actually really fast, from the day that we broke ground to the day that we moved in here. Think about what did not happen in that process. The building was not constructed without concepts, sketches, or plans. They didn't simply airdrop great loads of cement and steel and watch it all come together. It doesn't work that way. The architect and the builder displayed an intellect and a force of will that was greater than the accumulation of materials that were brought here to this campus. And what we see here, what we enjoy here, what we sometimes take for granted, came together with great vision and attention to detail, and then a whole lot of our sweat on top of that to finish off the project. We took on all of the painting, and we put in the drywall and the offices and the classrooms while the building team, uh, the professionals, built out this room and the lobby and all the steel that this building is built with. And we had a lot of fun doing our part in that, but it was a lot of work and a, and a lot of teamwork. A vision that displayed a kind of human greatness became a reality through a whole lot of effort and teamwork. The awesome features of the earth and the universe around us call attention to the greatness of God, the God who provided the resources and formed its shape. This is why the old hymns and a number of the current worship songs that we so often sing tell us about the greatness of God. This morning we sang, God of wonders beyond our galaxy, the universe displays your majesty. Those words aren't just picked for no reason. They're describing what we read here in Genesis, what we read in Psalm 19, what we read in a number of places in the Scriptures that the universe itself calls attention to the greatness of God who started all of this and who began the process and dreamed it up from the beginning. So here's the big idea that I want to get across today. One simple sentence. God introduces us to the, uh, Genesis rather, introduces us to the genius of God, the one who created a world that displays his greatness and implies his purpose. He has a purpose for this world. He has a purpose for putting you here in the place where you are and for your life and the gifts and talents and the, the intellect and the heart and the skills that you have. Genesis introduces us to the genius of God. That leads to our fourth discovery, that God brings purpose. Again, that same verse, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. As soon as we mention the heavens and the earth, we think of images. We think of the earth's shape, the unique surface pattern that distinguishes it from all the other planets. There is none other like it. We think of images of the stars and galaxies as we observe the heavens. We wonder not only how they got there, but Why? They are there. The Bible's answer is wrapped up in the God who created them. So I mentioned Psalm 19 a moment ago. Psalm 19 begins with these words. The heavens declare the glory of God. 
The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. The rest of that psalm goes on to expand this thought even further. But what this is describing for us is the way that God reveals himself in what we call general revelation from the world around us. We do not take everything that we know about God simply from the Bible alone. God has put his thumbprint all over the created order and the world and the universe around us and even our own bodies display the glory and the magnificence of God. The entire psalm spills out these, revelation, these um, observations from general, general revelation that we are able to observe. So, it means that the earth and the heavens were created to reveal God to us and his purposes. He is a God who gives life, who provides amazing resources, who sustains all things. Special revelation is what we learn from God's self-disclosure in the Scriptures. Can we throw up that slide that uh, talks about general revelation and special revelation? So this, this is an important concept here. We've been talking about general revelation, which tells us about what we can learn from God through creation. God made the world this way so that the world around us raises questions. How did this start? How did this get here? How do you get something from nothing? All those thoughts are designed to lead us toward the realization there had to be someone, some intelligent force at the beginning. This isn't all just by accident. Special revelation is what we get in the scriptures when God speaks to a prophet, to a leader, or speaks to us through his inspired word. We revere the scriptures because God speaks through them, and we come to know God in them. But these work together. They are both important. But we need God's special revelation because there are some things we would never get from general revelation. You would never get the redemptive heart of God. You would never understand the life of Jesus and the sacrifice of Jesus and how that applies to our lives. We need the way that God speaks to his people in order to understand his truth, but it's backed up by the discoveries we make in the world around us. Does that make sense to you? Here's why this is relevant to you and me. The phrase, the heavens and the earth, is technically, technically called a merism. It means that he created the heavens, the earth, and everything in between. That's the point of that simple description. And that means that he created you and me, too. Even if you reject God, don't believe in him at the moment, God has a purpose for your life. Your life has intrinsic meaning that comes from God. I was deeply moved by the opening song that we sang in that worship section at the beginning of the service. I am who I am because the I am tells me who I am. There's so much truth in that statement. We discover who we are ultimately through the way that God looks at us and what God tells us about himself. Now, if we were to dive more into special revelation, I'm departing from my notes, departing from the purpose of this, this message. If we were to dive into special revelation a little bit more, we would find that God tells us when we put our faith in him that we are his children, that we belong to him, that he chose us even before we saw him, that uh, we've, we are highly valued and we become his children when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. And that we're part of a family and that we are worthy of his love because he has said so. And we have all these amazing truths about who we are. 
your life has value to God. That leads us to another discovery about God, that God is complex. So the first three verses start off this way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Any being who could mastermind and design the heavens and the earth is grand. Must be grand. His abilities to to design and create are beyond our full capacity for understanding. His purposes for all that exists are still unfolding and will be throughout time. But there's another clue here. The Hebrew word that is rendered simply as the name God, in the beginning God, is the word Elohim. Now, Elohim is a a plural uh, construct. It's It comes from the Hebrew word El, which means mighty God. Elohim is the plural of El. Have you ever wondered why that might be so? Why would God use a a plural name as the first name that we discover? Uh, Don't be uh, surprised. There are a number of names for God. Most of them are titles, and they reveal something about his nature. Elohim indicates that God is the one who is full of power. So it speaks of his fullness of power, not just mighty God, but the one who is full of power, the kind of power that it takes to speak a word or bring the world into existence or to set that process in motion. Elohim drops a clue about the complexity of God within the unity of God. That first clue is followed closely by the reference to the Spirit of God in verse 2. Verse 1, we meet God the Creator. Verse 2, we meet the Spirit of God who's hovering over the waters. Verse 3, God says, let there be light, and there was light. So we, we discover God the Creator, God the Spirit. John's gospel begins with those same words, in the beginning, and then he begins to introduce Jesus as the light that was coming into the darkness, the light of the world, the one who was there from the beginning, and he tells us that everything that was created was created for him and by him and through him. John seems to be telling us that back in verse 3 of Genesis 1, when God said, let there be light, and the creative force begins to take hold, that Jesus was that aspect of the Godhead who was involved in creation, that the world is for him and by him. And here we have the first clue about this complexity of God that becomes more fully seen through the rest of Scripture with the name Elohim. It's a plural name. It gives rise to why Genesis 1, 26 and 27 has God, Elohim, saying, let us make man in our image with these plural pronouns. That within the one God, there is great complexity. Are you beginning to see why we have to go back to the beginning? If we are to contend for the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints, we read that verse last week from Jude 3. Genesis first tells us in the beginning God, then it introduces us to the genius of creation, the genius of Genesis, the genius who is God. This is who God is, eternal, creator, greater, purposeful, and complex. Boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, let me introduce you to the real genius of Genesis, the one we've been praising all along. He is the God who has put you in a world with so much provision, 
with so much opportunity because he has a purpose for your life that is tied up in his own purpose, in his own story, and in his own greatness. Or, as we sang, a little more simply, I am who I am because the I am tells me who I am. Genesis introduces us to the genius of God, the one who created a world that displays his greatness and implies his greater purpose. Come on back next week. We're going to add another layer to this. We're just staying for two months in Genesis chapter 1, and we're building out foundational discoveries that God wants us to know from the very first chapter of the Bible. And here's my theory from this series. If we understand these foundational principles, we all of a sudden have a greater appreciation and understanding for who we are and how we are to operate in this world because we know more about what God wants us to know about Him. Father God, thank You for this wonderful congregation of people who have a deep desire to know truth, to wrestle with truth in the midst of the context of the world that we live in so that we can also receive all of the discoveries that are out there in general revelation while we ponder the written word of special revelation. Now, Lord, use these two sources that both come from you to make us wiser and to prepare us to live lives that are full of balance and understanding, deep faith and deep inquiry at the same time, afraid of nothing because we know who is behind it all. Lead us to faith. Lead those who are sitting on the fence and wondering if there are really reasons why intelligent people can believe in the God of the Bible. Use this series to build a foundation for grasping all sides of truth. In Jesus' name.